our days bring glory to the name of our King, our resurrected Savior. And certainly Easter Sunday gives us an opportunity to take a unique glimpse into the person and work of our King. And I invite you to turn to two places this morning, one being the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. And with your finger there, also turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be reading from both of these passages this morning, though most of our attention will be given to Ephesians chapter 2. We do speak often here of looking unto Jesus. We do so uh, not out of cleverness. Certainly that's, those are, that's not our phrase. It comes straight from Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 12. But we speak of it because it is an accurate portrayal of what the true Christian life is. One of constantly gazing at the person of Jesus Christ for who He is, for what He's done for us. And we're told by Paul, as we look upon Him, we are also likewise being transformed into the same likeness from one degree of glory to another which is exactly what he says in Romans chapter 8 is the purpose of the gospel in our lives, to conform us to the likeness of Jesus. So looking to Jesus is an, is an accurate understanding of, of what the gospel is, looking off everything else so that all of my attention can be upon Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done for the glory of God and for the good of my soul, and the longer I gaze upon him. I will become more like him, which is what the gospel is intended to produce. And it makes sense that on this Easter Sunday, uh, we would turn our attention to the resurrected Christ and look unto Jesus in his resurrection. But it does not behoove us just to know the facts of the resurrection. That's the foundation we must know factually, historically, there was a, a day when Jesus Christ, who died upon the cross, rose from the dead. But as we gaze upon the resurrected Christ, we learn something more about who He is and His work upon the soul of the believer. And that's what we want to focus upon together this morning. Let's look together first at the fact of the resurrection in Luke chapter 24. I'm just going to read a few of the verses, the historical account from Luke's gospel of the resurrection of Jesus. Luke 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, Two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and then on the third day will rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. That's just Luke's account of the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All praise be to God, the Father, the Son, and Spirit, who worked together 
to accomplish our salvation through Jesus' death and resurrection. Now turn over with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. With the resurrection of Christ upon our mind, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul as he speaks about our great salvation. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he, ha- he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you on this Resurrection Sunday and we bow the knee of our heart to you. We give you praise. We give you worship. We give you all the glory because in eternity past, Lord, you chose to save a people unto yourself only because you were rich in mercy. You were rich in grace. And your plan to save that people was through the life, death, and resurrection of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, who in the fullness of time did execute that plan perfectly, such that upon the cross He cried out to you, It is finished. He did what you sent Him to do. Three days later, He was raised from the dead in accordance with the Scripture, which foretold He must rise from the dead for our justification, for our eternal life. And now our King is ascended and at the right hand, your right hand, enthroned, reigning sovereignly, even as we've seen in the book of Revelation recently. But Lord, we praise you because that same resurrection power that brought Christ from the dead to walk out of a grave, Paul, having gazed upon Jesus Christ and gazed upon the resurrection, sees is the same power that brought spiritual resurrection to our dead hearts and lives. Father, this morning, may we do more than just acknowledge the fact of the resurrection, though, Father, that is worthy of our time. Father, may we see that as a foretaste of what you've done for each and every one of us bringing us to life, bringing us to you, that we may walk in new life with you, with our King, worshiping, glorifying, blessing you forever. Oh, Lord, that's not always our experience here. We struggle. We have hurts. We have pains. We go through seasons of dryness and sin. But, Lord, on this Resurrection Sunday, show us the resurrection of our soul that you've accomplished through Jesus Christ. That today, Father, we may return to our King with joy. It is in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, our attention this morning is on Ephesians chapter 2. And there is a correlation with Easter here. 
For as in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is meditating upon the gospel of God that took a sinner like him and brought him into a living relationship with the living God and Jesus Christ. Paul says the immeasurable greatness of that power of God is the same power that was used to raise Jesus from the dead. You know, we talk about our own salvation oftentimes. We reduce it down to very simplistic ideas. A lot of times we convey salvation as it's little more than an intellectual decision on our part. Or it's an emotional decision we made. A moral decision. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. We, we minimize it down to just something that we do. For Paul... His understanding of God's grace was much deeper than that. In the song we just sang, Your grace, O Lord, is a well too deep to fathom. For Paul, his understanding of the gospel of grace upon his soul, he saw it as a magnificent work of the power of God. Nothing short of the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And so this morning, as we look into the resurrected Jesus, may the Lord be pleased to to awaken our souls to the, the wonder of that event and help us to see that as a foretaste of the wonder of our conversion, of when He took our dead hearts and breathed life into us. Here in the book of Ephesians, our focus this morning is verses 4 and 5. But just a little bit of background, what we see here, if I were to summarize what Paul has done up to this point in the book of Ephesians, I would say that he wants us to know this, that to be a Christian is by the grace of God, by the power of God, and to be a Christian is to be fundamentally changed as a person. Stay with me now for just a minute. To be a Christian is to be fundamentally changed from what we once were to something new. We can use the language on this Resurrection Sunday to be changed from death to life. For Paul, a Christian is fundamentally different from a non-Christian. A Christian is fundamentally different from what we once were. And the changes that were affected in us are not just periphery changes, They're not just superficial changes like we change our dress or we change the way we talk or we change the places we go. Sometimes Christianity focuses upon those things, a change of behavior, a change of talk. And while it may involve much of that stuff, for Paul, the change that takes place by the power of God doesn't affect just the periphery of our person, but it's the very core of who we are the very center of our being, our whole identity, our whole nature, what we are in our essence is forever changed. And that's what he's celebrating in Ephesians chapter 1. The power of God that took Paul, who was a religious guy in his own background, religious smart guy, good guy, moral guy, and fundamentally changed Everything about him rewired him, if you will, so that now, though he was a good guy, did not love God, did not love Jesus. Now he's completely rewired at the core of his being, and he's going to, throughout the rest of his life, live out things like this. 
Christ is all. For me to live, it's all about Christ. And if I die, it's gain because I get to go be where Christ is. Do you see how he's completely, his whole person has changed. Previously, he was a religious, moral, good person, but he did not love Jesus. Now, this fundamental change by the power of God, rewiring him, bringing life to his dead soul. Now, Christ is everything to him. That's why we often say here, if you can't say your love for Jesus is everything, there's really no reason to call yourself a Christian. You might be moral and religious and good like Paul was prior to his conversion, but the work of God upon a soul is, is akin to taking the deadness at the core of our being that is dead to God and dead to Christ and giving us life to God and life to Christ, that Christ becomes all. Becoming a Christian, oftentimes today, is thought of as almost like if you decide to join a country club. I've decided to join Jesus' kingdom. Or sometimes we talk today about taking up a hobby. Oftentimes following Jesus is kind of thought of as like a a hobby. Eh, You know, it would probably be a good thing for me to do to follow Jesus. But the reality is, when you take up a hobby, or when you join a country club, or join whatever group it is, that affects just one area of your life, right? That's your hobby. That's your group you hang with. But the work of God upon a soul changes not just one part of your life. It changes everything. Christ now is everything in your parenting, in your marriage, in your battle against sin, in your worship, in the struggles of life. Christ is everything. Everything is devoted to him, which is what Paul is saying in Philippians 1 when he says, for me to live is Christ. Christ isn't a part of his life. Christ is his life. Of course, That's an imperfect thing until we get to heaven, but it is the direction of our heart. And according to Paul's teaching here in Ephesians, anyone who treats Christ as but a compartment of his life, well then, you've not really been born again. You've not really been changed by the power of God. You're not a Christian at all, Paul was saying, unless this essential change has happened at the core of your being. Let me bring a quote to you this morning from a a great preacher from the past, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Listen to him on this topic. If Christianity, Lloyd-Jones says, if Christianity is not controlling the whole of your life, then you're just not a Christian. You just can't get more clear than that. If Christianity is not controlling the whole of your life, then you're just not a Christian. Christians are not people of whom it can be said that their lives are identical with everybody else, but they have something extra in addition. No, to be a Christian, says Paul, means that at the very center, at the very core of your being and existence, this new something has come in and it controls everything. Something new has invaded you from the outside and it's God's power, God's grace, God's spirit the Spirit of Christ has come in and now it's taken control and it controls everything. And if your life is not being controlled by this, Lloyd-Jones says, you're not a Christian. And here when we turn to Ephesians chapter 2, 
This is what Paul is helping us to understand. Paul defines what has happened to a Christian in the most radical terms possible, in the most Resurrection Sunday terms possible. He says in verse 5, we, when we were dead in our trespasses, when we were our souls were in the tomb, dead, lifeless, breathless, nothing. When we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Paul says that a change has happened to a Christian that is every bit as astonishing and magnificent and radical as what we gather together to celebrate this morning. We come together and we are astonished. A man rose from the dead. Jesus Christ walked out of the grave alive, right? We are astonished. We fall down in worship. We sing to this king who is alive. Paul says, if you are blown away by that, then you must likewise be blown away by what that God has done in your soul because it's nothing less. God has taken that deadness of affection for Christ, none whatsoever. Now, I can go to church, I can be religious, I can be moral, I can read my Bible, but I'm cold towards Christ. He's not everything to me. But Christ can breathe, God can breathe life into that soul so that that dead heart awakens, comes to life. And Paul here is saying the conversion of a soul by the power of God is the absolute same as the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. According to Paul, and then not just Paul here in Ephesians 2, we could go to countless passages in the whole of the Bible. Conversion to Christ is a spiritual resurrection. Conversion to Christ from death to life is a spiritual resurrection. He says, you were dead, dead in your heart, the core of your being, dead toward God, dead toward Christ. But God, if you're a Christian, has given you life. He's breathed life into that tomb that you call a heart. And he has breathed life to know Jesus, to love Jesus to desire Jesus, to hope in Jesus, to rejoice in Jesus, to be conformed to Jesus. And what has happened to us spiritually is what happened when Jesus walked out of that tomb alive. Oh, he was put in that tomb. Make no mistake about it. Dead. A corpse. Limp. And by God's power, the, spirit of, the, the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ as well. We're told throughout the Bible that the Father raised the Son. We're told that the Spirit raised the Son. And we're also told Christ raised Himself from the dead. The triune God raised Christ from the dead. And the same thing happened in us. It's the very same thing when Jesus stood before the tomb and called Lazarus to come out. Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus was dead. He'd been dead for quite some time. It was starting to stink he'd been dead so long. There was no question Lazarus was dead. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. What did Lazarus do? He gets up and he walks out of that grave. It's such that Jesus says, get the grave clothes off of him. He's not dead. 
It's exactly what Ezekiel pictured for us in Ezekiel chapter 37, some 600 years before the resurrection of Jesus. We might call this a dress rehearsal for the resurrection. In Ezekiel chapter 37, Ezekiel writes, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me among them. And behold, they were, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. You're familiar with the story of the valley of dry bones, aren't you? It's a picture of a defeated army. And it's nothing but skeletons. They've been defeated badly. There's nothing left but bones and skeletons. It's a defeated army. And one of the truths we get from that vision is that's what we are. Now, in that day, that's what Israel is. But according to Ephesians chapter 2, that's also what we are. When you look at that valley of dry bones, don't be thinking of somebody else. You're looking in the mirror. That's what you are. That's what I am. Dead. And this we know about dead people. There ain't nothing they can do to change their situation. A dead person can't try to bring themselves back to life. They require, what, the work of medical help. And if they're dead, likely they're not coming back. A dead person can't help their own situation. And then in verse 3 of Ezekiel 37, And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? The obvious answer there is no. No, they're, they're dead. They're bones. And the new covenant understanding of that is they certainly can't live without God's help. They can't live apart from Christ. Just as death cannot remove death from itself, these bones can't change themselves. Can these bones live? Do dead people come back to life? Not generally, no. But one did. How did Jesus come back to life? It was the power of God who breathed life into those bones and brought them to life. And this is what Paul says about us and our dry, dead bones spiritually. Our merciful Father loved us when we were incapable of loving Him. Dead people can't love. If we are dead toward God, dead toward Christ, we cannot love Him. Now, we may sing songs where we profess with our lips, we love Him, but Jesus knows better. He knows our hearts. And we can't hear, love Him, unless He has first loved us. Until He has first given Himself to us. We were dead in trespasses and sin. Blind. Can these bones live? Lord, you know, is the answer. They can be made alive, but only by the power of God. 
And that's what Ephesians chapter 2 is painting for us. That work of what we often call regeneration, the new birth, God taking out that heart of death that does not love Him and giving us a heart of love and life that does love Him, that sees Him, that knows Him, that worships Him. Well, that's regeneration. That's the new birth. That's the process. We pass from death. He's taken death out of us and He's put life into us. A new heart. And, and this work of God of, of spiritual resurrection, just as He raised Christ physically from the grave, so too spiritually He raises us. This, we can think of this in, in two different ways. Legally and spiritually. Legally, through the new birth, Though we ourselves are dead and we have merited, the wages of sin is death, right? That's what we've earned. Christ has cleansed us. Christ, through his death upon the cross, through his shed blood, we are, our sins are forgiven. We are justified before him so that in the new birth, even though we've done nothing but sin, God declares that before his face, because of Jesus Christ, we're justified. Our sins are forgiven. It's as though we've never sinned before. That's spiritual resurrection. God, legally before Him, we who were dead and the wages of sin is death before Him, now through the work of God's Spirit, now we stand before Him forgiven, justified, holy, righteous. How in the world did that happen? Did you do that? Did I do that? No. It was the work of God upon these dead bones upon our sin and trespasses. But also, Christianity involves not just a change of our legal status before the throne of God, but spiritually it changes us. Spiritually, the spiritual resurrection makes us alive to God. Lloyd-Jones once again explains this well. Regeneration, he says, is an act of God by which, a, by which a principle of new life is implanted into man. And the governing disposition of the soul is made holy. And God, by His mighty action, puts a new disposition in my soul. A new disposition. What's he talking about? Like we said at the beginning, a change of person. He puts within me something new that wasn't there before. Previously, there was not a love for Jesus, that he was all, and a devotion, a turning away from all else, that I must have him. But now he's put in this new life a new disposition within me, a new disposition of an awareness of the beauty of God, his holiness, his majesty, his righteousness. Along with that, a sense of my own, the, the depth of despair between well, here's where he is and here's where I am. But oh, the beauty and the fullness of Christ, who is everything necessary to bring me and to give me this place before God. He's made me alive before God. The rebirth, this new life, this spiritual resurrection, it doesn't give us new faculties. Uh, but by that I mean... Before the new birth, you had a brain. After the new birth, you still have a brain. Before the new birth, you had a soul, you had a will, you had a body. And after the new birth, you still have all that as well. None of that changed structurally. Everything you were structurally prior to the new birth, the same you were structurally after the new birth. What has changed is the function 
of those things. The function of your brain, the function of your soul, the function of your will, the function of your body. Previously, you had certain talents, certain abilities, certain experiences. Well, the new birth, you carried those over. You didn't necessarily get new talents, new experiences. But what happened to those talents and experiences? The function of them changed. Now those talents that were previously used for you and your agenda are now used for what? Because I've been awakened to God and the beauty of Christ. Now my talents are for him. The gifts that I previously had and I used for me, 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 now they're used for him. There's a new life, a new disposition, a spiritual resurrection has taken place. I once was dead towards God, but now I've been made alive and all of my faculties, all that I am is about Jesus and his renown. And this new governing principle is what Lloyd-Jones is talking about there. This spiritual resurrection is a governing principle that is brought to life at the very center of our beings. Previously, it was dead. Previously, we didn't use our minds, our bodies, our wills, our talents, our gifts for Christ. But now, having been awakened and alive to Him, now all of it is for Him. Do you see? Another commentator, James Montgomery Boyce, shows how this spiritual resurrection of the soul changes everything. Bear with me. This is a lengthy one, but it's well worth our time. Follow along. When God breathes new spiritual life into us in the work known as regeneration or spiritual resurrection, we become something we were not before. We have a new life. And that life is responsive to the one who gave it. Before this... The Bible meant nothing to us when we read it or when it was read in our hearing. But now the Bible is intensely alive and interesting. Now we hear the voice of God in it. Now before this work of grace, the spiritual resurrection, we had no interest in God's people. Now they're our very best friends and co-workers. We love their company and can't get enough of them. Now before this work of grace, coming to church was boring. Now we're alive to God's presence in the service. Our worship times are the very best times of the week. Before this, service to others and uh, being ambassadors to Christ seemed strange and senseless, maybe even repulsive. But now it's our chief delight. And what has made the difference? The difference is God. God has changed us. We we're dead. But he, as he did on that resurrection morning with Christ, has made us alive. And now we are new creatures. Now let me address something here because inevitably, when we, when we are brought face to face with the gospel of grace like Paul portrays here in Ephesians chapter 2, it is not unusual for somebody to say, well, of course Paul is talking like this. That's Paul, the Apostle Paul, mighty Paul, godly Paul. I'm not Paul. I'm never going to be a, a missionary and pastor in that way. I'm just, I'm just little old me. And we kind of sidestep. Well, Paul's talking about people in a specific, specific position, not just everybody else. Oh, how Satan... And our flesh would love for us to believe that. 
What Paul is pointing out here in Ephesians chapter 2, the immeasurable greatness of God, the power of God, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead as the same power at work in the life of, of a believer. What Paul is helping us see, this is not optional. This is not well, this is how it is for frontline Christians. This is how it is for, for those who are in positions of leadership. I mean, this really magnificent work of grace that, that, that is for those people. No, no, there are no two tiers of Christianity that doesn't exist. This enlivening of a dead soul, a spiritual resurrection of the soul by the grace of God is something all true Christians have experienced it. And if it has not been experienced, that you are not a Christian. That's Paul's point. And that can be very difficult to swallow. But very important that we swallow it now and deal with it now before Jesus is warning many on that day will stand before me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? Look at my church attendance. Look at my Easter Sunday attendance. Look at my, the, the songs that I sang. Look at what I did. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. Why can he say that? Because the new birth makes us alive to him. Alive to him. All of my life is reconfigured to Christ. The Lord Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Of course, the very idea there puzzled Nicodemus. Born again? How can I enter into my mother's womb again? I'm a grown man. For all we know, his mother wasn't even alive anymore. How, how is this even possible? To which Jesus assures him, I'm not talking about physical Rebirth. I'm talking about a spiritual rebirth. And he says in John chapter 3, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is spirit. And he says again to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Must be. Not should be. Not I highly recommend it. Not it would be good if. Nicodemus, you must be born again. What's he saying? This regeneration, this spiritual resurrection is absolutely necessary to salvation. Others may want to give you assurance of your salvation. Oh, you're being hard on yourself. I, I, I remember when you prayed that prayer. I watched you be baptized. Oh, come on, you're being hard on yourself. I've seen you in church all these years. You're, you're one of the nicest people I know. Nobody gets into heaven based upon a prayer they prayed, their baptism, or upon how nice they are. What must be is a heart that's been made alive to God, whose heart, sins have been forgiven, a heart that has been changed. And Jesus' words to Nicodemus, and what Paul here is saying, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven unless you who were dead in your trespasses, which is all of us, are made alive with Christ. So, it would certainly beg the question, wouldn't it? How would I know? Because we live in a Christianity today where there's a lot of confusion. Everybody claims to be a Christian today. Everybody. Of some sort. 
How do I know that I've been born again, that I've passed from death to life? The most essential answer I can give you is the consistent answer of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Have you, by God's grace, been brought to a place where you see God's holiness and you're made aware of the perfections of God? And in that moment, you are immediately frighteningly aware of your own unworthiness, of your own, the distance, the gulf that exists between one so holy as he and one like you. Because that's really where it begins. We begin with the law of God. The law was given that we might know this is who God is. This is what he demands. And the law was never given for us to say, Ten Commandment number one, yeah, I'm doing pretty good on that one. Number two, if at any one of those commandments you're giving yourself the benefit of the doubt, fall to your knees and ask God to open your eyes to see His holiness and what He sees about you. Because the purpose of the law is to show you've never kept a one of them a day in your life. Never. And the only hope you have before this God is His Son, Jesus. Who He's the one who kept the Ten Commandments perfectly. He's the one who never sinned. And oh, by the way, He's the one who went to the cross and died for the sins of those He came to save. So that you and I, who are not law keepers, our law breaking can be forgiven and not held against us. And the record of righteousness and obedience that Christ has be accounted to us. And in that moment, do you see how that soul that recognizes, I've got nowhere else to turn. I, I, I have nothing to argue before God but one thing. Do you see how now in that moment Christ becomes the most important person in the life of this person? Christ is the one thing I must have. My, my good works are of no value. My religion is of no value. My possessions are of no value. My money is of no value. My health is of no value. I, I can have all of those things. And yet... The wages of my sin is an eternal separation from this God. One thing I must have, and I forsake all else. Have it all. I must have this Christ. Do you see? That is the evidence of the new birth. That heart for Jesus, so much so that Thomas Vincent is going to write centuries ago, where there is not that kind of love for Jesus, that he is all, I must have him, cling to him. He's all, not just at the moment of conversion, but throughout my life. Where there is not that kind of love for him, you are as dead as when you're driving down the road and you see the roadkill in the street, you're as dead as that. This is not how we often see Christianity portrayed. And that's why Jesus says, many in that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. We didn't think clearly. We were gospel ignorant about who God is. And that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that he uses to change a soul and to bring us to himself. And if that has not taken place, what are we resting in?
Paul says, we were dead in the trespasses and sin. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive. Do you hear the resurrection, the foretaste there? That's what He did with Christ in the grave. He breathed life and raised Jesus. That's a foretaste of what He does in the life of a true believer. Notice he does speak about this in two ways, this spiritual resurrection. The first, for those who are born again, he says he makes us dead to sin. A new life has begun, and an end to our former life has come about. For those that he has spiritually resurrected, born again, raised from the dead, we are, number one, dead to sin. Paul's clearest teaching on this topic comes in Romans chapter 6, where Paul is challenging the idea that God's grace could ever lead to a life that continues in sin. We often see this argument today. Well, if I'm forgiven, if God's grace, then I, I can, I'm free to live however I want to live. And I would, I just, you want to urge those people and urge my own soul because I wrestle with that. Go spend years on Romans chapter 6. Because there, Paul writes, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Answer, by no means. How can one who died to sin still live in it? Do you hear? That's Ephesians 2. How can one who died to sin, who's dead to sin, now continue to still live in it? Just as Jesus died on the cross for our sins, we too have died to sin through the new birth. And the implication is we are no longer what we once were. We're no longer, we can't go back to that old way of life. An adult can't become a child again, can you? Would you want to? It's an interesting question anyway. If you could go back, would you? It's interesting. But the fact is, we can't. An adult can't become a child. But an adult can certainly disgrace himself with childish behavior. And as Christians, through the new birth, we've been made dead to what we once were. John Stott, here's a great quote. Our biography is written in two volumes. Volume 1 is the story of the old man, the old self, me before my conversion. Volume 2 is the story of the new man, the new self, me after I was made a new creation in Christ. Volume 1 ended with the judicial death of the old self. That's spiritual resurrection when God breathes life into us. I was a sinner. I deserved to die. I did die. Volume 2 of my biography opens with Resurrection. My resurrection. My old life, dead. A new life to Jesus Christ begun. So that's one part of this spiritual resurrection. We're dead to the old self, and the other is we're alive to God. We're alive to God. He becomes everything to us. It is 
asinine to claim to be a Christian and to have no relationship with the living God. To claim to be born again, to claim that when you die, you'll go spend eternity with God in heaven, and yet in this life, you don't touch your Bible, which is God's word to you. That's where the voice of God speaks to you, not audibly, but through the text of pages. And if you have no prayer life of seeking God in prayer, the new birth awakens you to God, that he is all, that Christ is all, that he is your king, that he is your everything. And you claim to be one, but have nothing, no relationship to him? The new birth makes you alive to him. When you're alive to him, Everything you are, you offer to him. Your eyes belong to him. What you look at, what you take in. Your lips belong to God. Formally, I talked this way. Formally, I said these things. Formally, this was a pattern of using my lips selfishly and to put others down. But now, my lips belong to God. My feet. Formerly, they would take me to this place and that place, but now they belong to God. They take me into His presence to worship Him. My hands, my life, it's all for Him. This is the work of God upon a soul. This is not easy believism like we hear today. Pray this prayer, be baptized. Congratulations, we'll see you in heaven when you die. Welcome to the kingdom of God. That might be true. It really depends upon the rest of your life. How's your love for Jesus? How's your walk with Him? Your life being awakened to Him. This is why the New Testament writers often talk about finishing well, persevering to the end, enduring. I can make the argument with certain sensitivities that even as your physical body grows older and weakens, your spiritual life ought to be the strongest it's ever been. And that's not to suggest that there's not seasons of drift backwards, but if you're persevering to the end, these ought to be when you are the most mature and alive in God. Why? Because you are such a good person? No. Because this is the power of God in you. Are we here this morning celebrating the resurrected Christ, that God raised that man from the dead, the God-man? Yes. Well, then the same must be true of us. The same power that God used there, He's at work in our lives this morning, bringing us to Him. This is why Paul says in verse 5, it's by grace you have been saved. By grace. We hear a lot about grace today. Here we find what it really means to be saved by grace. Just three comments. Number one, to be saved by grace means you don't deserve what God has done to you. You just don't. You don't deserve. This God who has breathed life into your dead heart, dead in trespasses and sin, it did not happen because of what you are or because of what you've done. Actually, it's just the opposite. God has 
breathe the resurrection power into your heart and to mine because he is rich in mercy. And that's the only reason. This is why Paul opens in chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I take no glory in it. You get all the glory in it. It's you who were rich in mercy who saved one like me. It's sheer grace. It wasn't because of anything in Paul. It was because, God, you are rich in mercy. That's grace. God breathed resurrecting life into you when you deserved nothing but death. When you did not believe in God. When you were his enemy. That's what grace is. You didn't lift a finger to him. Not a finger, not a heartbeat. He did it all to you. Secondly, grace also means you didn't achieve salvation by any power within yourself. There wasn't, sometimes you hear it portrayed this way. Some people are Christians because, well, I mean, they had a better situation. They grew up in a better home. They, just had a little, they were better people. They had a better situation than this person. They had an unfair advantage. No. The Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, none good, no, not one. Go look at Romans chapter 3. Yes, it is a, a wonderful grace of God to grow up in a Christian home as opposed to not being so. But that person who grows up in a Christian home does not have an advantage over all the others. He is every bit as sinful as the worst criminal in the world. My little seven-year-old back there, precious as he is to me, is an absolute sinner before the face of God. He heard that. And the fact of the matter is, if he or you or I are awakened to the rally of God in Christ so that we forsake all else in repentance and turn to Jesus Christ in faith, it is all by the resurrecting power of God. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that brings us to life. It's not based upon who we are or what we do. It's not based on any power within us. Thirdly, to be saved by grace is to be united to Jesus Christ by faith. We're not just saved and it's just kind of, a, oh, we let by, your sins are forgiven. There's nothing. And so now it's just kind of an open, until you go to heaven, it's just kind of a free for all. Live how you want to live. Just know when, when you die, you get to stand before God and, and you, you had your ticket punched. And it probably sounds crazy for me to frame it that way, but is that not kind of how Christianity gets portrayed? We, we pray to receive Christ, we're baptized, we join the church, and then, and then, of course, we don't just want to be reprobates in the way that we live, but just kind of do the best you can and just, hey, when you get there, you're good. The new life that we've been breathed into by God's power is a breath that powerfully unites us to Jesus Christ. We were raised together with Christ is what it says. Together with Him. God made us alive and united us to Jesus Christ. Through His death is my death. His resurrection is my resurrection. 
His eternity is my eternity. And all of life now is lived in connection with Jesus Christ. That's why we can say Christianity is a looking to Jesus, a clinging to Jesus, a holding on to Jesus. Because if at any moment you're living your life independent of Jesus, you've not understood the grace of God. You can't even claim the grace of God. Because the grace of God unites you to the person of Jesus. That's what the gospel of grace produces in the soul of a believer. Spiritual resurrection. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, so too we've been raised by resurrection power with newness of life. I preach about this on Resurrection Sunday. The great tragedy is many around the world today will sit and contemplate mentally the facts of the resurrection. And we could have done that same thing together and walked out of here. And yes, that would have been true. Do we understand the resurrection produced something? The resurrection of God produced something in the life of the believer. It's a foretaste, if you will. As God raised him, ascended him to the throne, where right now he's interceding for us, the work of the Holy Spirit now is to take the, the resurrection power of God that raised Christ from the dead and to produce that in us now, to live resurrection lives of resurrection power, lives of grace, lives of Awaken, dead to sin, awakening to Jesus Christ. Forsaking all else, Christ is all. And on this Resurrection Sunday, acknowledging the facts of the resurrection is good, but the better question is, are you living out the resurrection in your life? The work of God bringing you from spiritual death to spiritual life, uniting you with Jesus, turning away from all else, in looking unto Jesus. That's the broad story of Easter. The purpose of the resurrection. To conform us to the likeness of Him. How is it between your soul today and God? Now today's a little bit tricky to answer because on Easter Sunday there's always just a general sense if you wake up, you feel just by, by the nature of it's Easter Sunday. So maybe it would be helpful. Take a look back on the last two to three weeks of your life. How is it between you and God in his word? How is it between you and God in your prayer life with him? How is your love for Jesus over the last couple of weeks? How is it forsaking all else and looking to Jesus? He's all over the last several weeks. By God's grace, we pray, we pray that He's continuing to, to grow and mature us in those things. But it may be this morning that we look at it and we realize, oh my goodness, my life is not giving a lot of evidence of this kind of resurrection grace. Well, don't excuse it. Don't pardon it. Don't just kind of move past it. See this Easter Sunday as a grace of God, not just to remind us of the glory of the resurrected Christ, of the intention of the gospel to produce that same thing in you. And if it's not there, praise God. Lord, I run to you. I run to Jesus Christ. I repent and I profess Jesus Christ is all. Ask God 
to do this work of grace in your life today. What a joy it is to know this Christ, to be able to look off all else and look unto him and look unto him in the resurrection. Now by God's grace, are we being conformed to that?